0: Hello and welcome to the Noise Creators Podcast. I am your host, Jesse Cannon, and this week we got an awesome, awesome one to welcome us back. This is with Michael Beinhorn. Now, if you don't know who he is, well, I don't know what's wrong with you. Let's just talk a little bit about it. Uh, Herbie Cancock, Rocket, one of the songs that changed music technology. He was a big part of that. Then he goes on to do innovative record production with everybody from Corn, Marilyn Manson, Soundgarden, Red Hot Chili Peppers. Ozzy Osbourne, my personal favorite, Mew, whole celebrity skin. I mean, the dude has done so much stuff. He has a new business that does pre-production, and we talk a lot about why pre-production is so important. And In general, he has just lots of that old wisdom that you don't hear every day that I really appreciate because I grew up around it, but you sometimes forget it because it's not what we're discussing. I think this is a really, really great discussion. Before we get started, right after this, you're going to hear a trailer for my new podcast. I teamed up with Atlantic Records to make these documentaries that will teach you more about how records really get made in the big time and what you can learn from it. It's fucking incredible that I got to do this. I've been working on it for the whole last year. There's so many episodes we've been making, and we've been making so much cool stuff together at Atlantic. So I want you to listen to that. As well, my last book, Processing Creativity, is in this podcast feed still. You can listen to it for free. Enjoy the free audiobook. I just want to spread. If you've enjoyed that, have enjoyed it, forgot to share it with people, please link them to this or the book site on Amazon and let people know how good this is, if you enjoyed it. Okay, without further ado, here's Michael. Hello, my name is Jesse Cadden. I've devoted my life to trying to go deep and figure out what goes into making great albums. In the past i've been lucky enough to make great records with bands like the cure animal collective the misfits and over a thousand others i've written two books and recorded hundreds of podcasts pursuing the hidden secrets of how great music gets to the world's ears now i'm proud to present to you atlantic records inside the album podcast atlantic has granted me unprecedented access to the artists producers managers and a and r to discuss what goes into really making the great records they release on this season, we talked to Dashboard Confessional about making a record that pleases both himself and fans, both old and new.
1: I like our old stuff better, and I like moments and songs from our later era of recording. But as a whole body of work, I like everything up through half of Dusk and Summer.
0: Jeff Richmond and the creators of the hit play Mean Girls talk about what goes into developing a mega-hit Broadway play and cast recording.
1: Trying to find out what is that song that you actually want to like sit down and write is tricky and is a challenge because
0: there's not that much real estate for songs, even though it's a musical. Vance Joy talks creating a follow-up to a successful debut album. And I'm more like eating my lunch before breakfast, kind of like getting too far ahead before I'm like focusing on just this one detail of what am I doing making a song. Pete Wentz of Fall Out Boy talks mentoring Nothing Nowhere. But First you find out if you like someone's art. If you do and that's interesting to you, you find out what their basic mission statement as an artist is and then you see if you can align with that vision. And we also talked to Grandson about crafting his highly politically charged debut EP. The indie rock band Wallows on making a record that sounds like The Loss of Youth, Jason Mraz on finding a greater truth in music for his latest LP No, and Brent Cobb on making Honest Music. Subscribe now and stay tuned for the deepest inside look you will get into how great records are being made today. You can also head to AtlanticPodcast.com for more information on this podcast and Atlantic Records. First off, can you
1: tell everybody your history and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, sure. I guess I'll try and abbreviate as much as possible. I left home at 17, joined a band, lived on streets and people's couches for a while. In about five years, we wound up producing a gentleman named Herbie Hancock and gave him his biggest hit ever with a song called Rocket in 1983. And from there, I just went on to produce a variety of different artists. I slowly over time began turning my attention more towards the process of creativity, what's fundamentally missing from the way music is created now in order to help people get on track with what they're doing and really be more expressive and communicate more of who they are instead of trying to conform to a standard of what people think that they're supposed to be. So you have a new service that's all about pre-production. Can you tell us how that came about? Well, it came about in part because, believe it or not, pre-production is something that a lot of people have stopped doing on their records. Yeah, well, especially people who don't have a lot of money to record. As shocking as that is, a lot of people, when they have a specific amount of money to record with, they allocate that money mainly towards getting the recording done. I've noticed there's a trend where if an artist has just enough money To be able to spend a little bit more time on what he's doing, he's going to be more apt to hire someone to produce his record who would have normally been out of reach. But now all of a sudden the the artist has a little more money. He's like, oh, I'm going to go for producer X because he's like an A-list guy and I really want to have someone with a big name. Plus, he's done some of my favorite records. Problem is in these scenarios that the producer needs to get a certain amount of money for his time in order to make the situation work for him so what's going to happen is is that he's going to abbreviate the entire recording process instead of applying you know an entire course of time to a recording project which is to me appropriate he's going to wind up giving this artist like a week and a half maybe two or three weeks to do the entire thing you can do a recording pretty fast if you know what you're doing the problem there is that pre-production on a record can take a long long time. I mean, it can go on for months. And what takes that time up is time spent really kind of mulling over the music. Like, are these the right songs? What arrangements need to be done? Okay, these aren't the right songs. We need other songs. What are those songs like? There's a whole trial and error process and a lot of bouncing things back and forth. But all of a sudden you've abbreviated that because your economic makeup of your recording project is different. You've allocated your money differently. It's all put into the recording budget. You don't have time to figure out what it is that you're actually going to be recording, which is, you know, sadly, it's an ass backwards type thing, but the economics, they sort of recombine themselves around this new paradigm of recording. You know, the states, my recording is going to be better if I have an A-list producer instead of like, wait a sec, if I invest more in the foundational aspect of my record, or at least give myself the time, then I'm going to wind up with something that's much, much better than anything I've ever done before. And I'm seeing this happen a lot. I'm really sort of devoting myself to doing pre-production for people. And I find that, first of all, most of the people that I'm I'm working with have never even done this before. They didn't know that you actually took time to prep a record out. When it happens... It's like going into a fantastic new like territory that they've never visited before, where they can sit back and go, what am I really trying to say? And that for an artist now, that's the craziest thing in the world. To also feel like, oh, I've got the luxury to be able to do this. There's no time demand. It's like, I can't think of many artists now whose record the world is waiting for. So who, no one really cares because there's so much new music that's flooding the landscape. It's like, You don't know where to look, and so much of it, frankly, is mediocre, but it doesn't have to be. That's the thing. If people only put time and attention into being able to prep the recording and create that foundation— but what it gives, the payback is a thousandfold over the effort that you put into it. And, you know, you, you only find that out once you get into this process. One of the most poignant things I've heard was from an artist that I've been working with who actually said to me before this, I never knew what my record was going to sound like until after it was completed. Think of, think of the ramifications of that, though. Like you've written the songs, but you don't really know how they work and you're not going to know until after the record's done. See, that's a capital crime right there. It's like you should never, ever go into a recording studio unless you know your music, unless you feel 100% confident. That and so much more has really been the genesis behind getting this project rolling.
0: Those are actually all amazing points. Thinking from the listener's perspective, a lot of people, you know, when they even hear an artist spends more than two weeks recording, they're like, what the hell did you do during all that time? Stiff cocaine and party? Then you're talking about a month of pre-production. So tell us what happens during that time for you and what you're doing during this
1: important time. Well, what's interesting for me is that my time isn't really being used. It's the artist what happens in a situation like this most of my work is being done remotely I don't have to go to anyone unless i'm in a situation where we decide that i should be there while they're rehearsing songs to go through performance aspects of them say i have to work with a couple of the musicians to tighten up a rhythm section or observe how the vocalist is working so i can help him you know with his performance generally speaking this is all structural stuff it can be dealt with in so many different ways but i get music typically i get demos I have a chance to listen to the demos and I have to break them down. I have to essentially analyze them to their, I guess, molecular substance. But the thing is, is that unlike a person who's going to tell you, oh, this is all great. You know, this is wonderful. My job is to do the absolute opposite. It's to find all the chinks. I haven't really done my job until I found everything that's not functioning correctly. That's where you're going to get into trouble. And it doesn't matter at that point who you go into a recording studio with, who you're working with, How good they are at placing mics, what gold and platinum records they've done, etc., etc. None of that matters because if your songs aren't structured well, if you're missing arrangement stuff, it's going to fall flat on its face. I mean, it's so easy to make a record that sounds like it should be a hit as opposed to a record that's definitely going to impact people because everything's flowing correctly. See, and there's a fundamental difference between the two. When you have a record where the musical stuff is flowing correctly, you're able to sustain a listener's attention. The sound is a very, very important part of it. But frankly, if you have only that, and you have a bunch of songs that aren't flowing correctly, you may as well not even have spent your money on anything. It won't matter at all. I'm taking time to analyze the music, and then I have to get back to the artist. And we typically go through a few rounds. And what happens Once an artist has received critique that is not, I guess you could say spurious, that's not irrelevant, that really kind of not only connects with him, but also confirms things. Because one thing I've noticed about artists is that they are a lot more analytical than one might think about their own work. It's usually difficult to get beyond the subjectivity of your work. I find in a lot of cases that people are, they have that intuition that something's not quite working. And when you give them a confirmation like that, It's almost like releasing something from it. And they go like, oh, wow, I've been wondering about that for so long. Just that alone gives them the opportunity to go, "Okay, this is making sense. And it opens the door for them to kind of consider further a lot of the other arrangement issues, you know, issues with some some of the material, like, is this song even good? But it all has to be broken down. Typically, they'll go away, come back with revisions based on conversations that we've had. And then we'll go through the process again. And we'll just go through it till we all get to a point where we agree And this generally won't take more than like three, maybe four rounds of back and forth where we agree that things are okay, and they're actually ready to go in and make a record. Uh, You know, I've seen people just go through so much where they go, wait a sec, what am I rushing this for? Which from my perspective, I kind of want to hear that because it means like all of a sudden I'm willing to be my own quality control. I'm not willing to put something out into the world that's just going to be a matter of me getting, quote unquote, content out there without any substance to it. I really like that difference between uh, content and substance.
0: So, what guides your decisions during this process? Is it artist goals? Like, can you tell me about how you get to the guidance that you would give somebody? And, like, what
1: are some of the choices that happen during that process? Well, yeah, I have to say that it's probably 97 to 99% intuitive, really. It comes, in my case, from listening to a lot of music over the years, it's not just a question of what I like. It's not so much taste-based. It's more about something that feels good because there's kind of like a somatic or a body-related sense of what feels good and what feels bad. You know, everyone experiences this. It's it's how people make a lot of basic decisions in their lives about all kinds of stuff. Oftentimes, if you're listening forensically to a piece of work a piece of music, and you come upon a part that isn't working, there's always a like... Ah. You know, there's like a moment of like, wow, yeah, something didn't hit me right. I can also detect that by realizing that my attention span has wavered. Usually if you're listening to a piece of music and it sustains your interest for a moment, but then all of a sudden you're paying attention to something else, chances are you have encountered an event in the arrangement, generally speaking, or in the composition that has diverted you away. Like all of a sudden, something else that's happening in your immediate environment or a thought may come into your head. That's more important. That shouldn't happen if you're listening to a piece of music. It should engage you constantly. I use things like that as a cueing system. And then I have to go back and try and figure out what that was. I mean, a lot of times you could be talking about a root note that clashes with a chord or a bass drum hit that's not supporting a vocal phrase in the right spot. But these are things that are really very, very important structurally when you're talking about reviewing a song, especially a song that's been you know written by a band. So these are the kinds of things I'm looking for. You know, I'm, I'm seeking that sense of am I riveted to this? Is this sustaining my interest level? Where are the disconnects happening? Also, is this, is this overall just sitting right with me? Is there something missing? And also I have to take into account what the artist fundamentally is trying to do because a lot of people have an overriding, um, overarching kind of concept behind who they are artistically. I often have to plug that into any kind of template that I'm working on. So I have to be sensitive to all that as well. It's kind of like a balancing act. I like that a lot.
0: So I'm in agreement with you that like pre-production is like one of the more essential parts of the process. But if I remember, you're kind of like famous, like you modified tape machines, did all this gear stuff over the years that like people would talk about kind of as legend. It seems like a pivot. Is there something that ever changed in you or was this always a big thing and you just That was all part of this. Can you explain that?
1: Well, you know, the economics of the recording world and the music industry have changed drastically since I was able to sink thousands of dollars into modifying tape machines like that and really trying to function as far on the bleeding edge recording wise as possible. I think that there are scenarios where that exists but there's so few and far between. I mean, recording, unfortunately, and music creation in general has been transformed since those days from something that was really fluid and exciting and inspiring. You basically looked at this yawning abyss in front of you, realized that the next move you made, you weren't going to fall off a cliff, but you were going to keep flying. And the question became at that point, what direction do I want to fly in? You know, now, you're kind of looking at a much smaller divide to cross. You don't have wings to do it. There's basically one bridge and everyone's on it. And you basically use that bridge. That's it. No one's got wings. You're channeled in one direction. The economics play a big role in that. In the music industry, the music industry plays an even larger role. People are convinced now that you can't make money at this anymore, which I mean, I think is a bunch of horseshit. But like, that's me. But right now, a lot of people aren't doing it. Uh, In the meantime, while you have people who, in order to get on the uh, train and get a record deal, are increasingly having to emulate or conform to, I guess, very arbitrary standards of what actually is going to get you through the door of a record company, you know, in terms of sound-wise, in terms of what your band does, there's a whole slew of people out there who have very little money to make a record with. I would say a good portion of these people actually shouldn't be making records at all, that they're probably not suited for it. But there are people out there who are, and they will never, ever, ever have the opportunity to make a record where they've had the time, where someone's going to want to work with them, where the economics of getting paid as a producer doesn't necessitate them to say, I can only do this for a short amount of time because I'm making no money it's not feasible anymore. If only that artist had access to some way to be able to bounce ideas off someone and get some really good feedback where they could actually progress and do something like that. So to me, this is like, I mean, it sounds like, oh yeah, you know, guys got like a really cool business idea. It's not, this is not a good way to make money. (laughs) You know, it's because I'm not really trying to work with people who are really established. I mean, chances are they probably done this kind of thing and they can recognize the value of it to me this is something that's that should be for everyone you know and it, I see it more as a public service talking about that value of let's say you were talking about
0: the producer time and like them cutting back on the budget what would you say is a better distribution of time like would it be better to record a little faster and work on the songs more like what do you see when somebody's cramped on time as is, is there any like guiding
1: value judgment you have there well it, it is always about how you're shifting your finances in a case like this. If you have X amount of dollars to play with, then yeah, I really think it's it's important, especially if you are able to look at the process of making a recording from a different perspective. If you take the perspective of oh, I got to get my songs out here then you're going to record them however you want to record them. It's not going to matter as much. And that's fine. You're more likely to wind up with something that's going to sound like what everyone else is doing because you haven't taken the time to be able to break down what you already have. I don't think that that's beneficial in the long run. My feeling is to be able to invest in building a stronger foundation for the house by taking more time to be able to take the step back from your music and look at it carefully, and to bring someone else in to help you do that, I think that that's a much better distribution. And from there, maybe step away from the idea of hiring someone who's going to cost a lot of money, who's going to actually take most of your recording budget for, you know, a couple of weeks of work. I'm not saying, by the way, that any of the people that can be hired to do that job are going to be slouches, generally going to be winding up with people who are incredibly good at what they do. You know, especially at working really fast and making a quality sounding record. But the element of all the time spent being able to break down the music, restructure it so that it's so much more solid, so that things flow smoothly. And again, I'm saying this not based on, oh, this is a new kind of cool idea. This is based on 35 years worth of experience (laughs) watching and seeing how being able to do a recording where there's prep time involved benefits. I mean, I'll give you an example right now, the record Super Unknown that I did with Soundgarden. Well, I can tell you this, most of that record would not exist as we know it if we had not taken two months or so beforehand to spend time arranging songs and writing and really going through the process of what that record was going to look like, what it needed. Without that, every song that people know all the songs that wound up being singles on that record were a result of that two months time process. You know, and that, and it took a lot of work. There was a lot of heavy lifting to get to that point. And I can tell you right now, I've seen that work time and time again. I know this process works. It's proven itself out time and again. And it's the best possible investment. That's why I say it's arguably the most important phase of a recording process.
0: So how about the actual preparation before they even get to the pre-production, are you a big believer in that there needs to be tons of song options? Like, for example, even on that Soundgarden record, was there tons of songs to choose from? Like, I think about how high quality those songs were in that day. Like, there's anything I remember that record being like, the songs that were never released as singles still should have been singles on a lot of that. Was that drafting those songs, and that you would just, like, work on those songs until they're that good, or was there an emphasis on having a load of material to choose from first?
1: It depends on the artist. I mean, some artists come equipped with enough songs to make a record, and some people come with, like, bushels (laughs) and tons of songs. In this case, uh, and if you're talking about a super unknown, I got a cassette tape that had maybe 11 things on it. I'd say about four or five of those tracks made it on the record. The rest of it was just jams and stuff like that. And I was like, we don't have a record. You know, we can't go in and record this. Like, I think they were really, you know, chomping at the bit to start working. And I was like, we got work to do. That was, you know, that's where that came from. In that case, like I said, it was a lot of work. A lot of the ideas weren't there. And at one point, I'd say that there was like a maybe three week period, a month long period where I got at one point a cassette from Chris that had about 11 or 13 songs on it. And they were all like subpar. And I was like, I got to talk to this guy. You know, that's what can happen in this process as well. And in that case, it's actually a little more difficult because you're dealing with an artist who already has experience with this process. But, you know, they may have gone down a blind alley, which in this case he had, you know, we really had to discuss it. So he could pull himself back up, you know, and get to a place where he was actually not only writing great material, but writing from a place that he'd never really considered writing from before. After that, that yielded four of the record's best songs. (laughs) So it's variable. The main thing is, is that as a producer, you have to know what's a really good song. And you have to know, when the artist has all the material that they need to be able to, to make the record that they want to make. Because you don't want to drag this whole thing out either. I think most artists aren't really built... To be able to self-assess, and that's fine. They shouldn't. Their job, ideally, is to write a whole bunch of great songs and focus exclusively on that. But th- And that's another issue, by the way, to go off on a tangent here, that artists, I think, are really forced into wearing so many different hats because the economics of the music industry are so bad now. They have to be their own engineers. They have to be their own Pro Tools operators and programmers. They have to play all the instruments. They have to arrange all the songs, write all the songs, perform all the songs. They have to do the their own branding you know they have to design their own logo it's just this endless litany of stuff that they have to do there's no more peripheral support happening where people have these industries that are supportive to the one because the one is just not bringing the bucks anymore it's it tends to spread people thin because their focus really lies elsewhere other than being able to focus on what am i trying to say in this like what do i really want to get out I've got this feeling inside of me that needs to get turned into a song. So, with that, there's a
0: very big argument some people make about this. And I think you're like one of the only people I think who could probably speak to this because you're one, so vast in genre, and two, you've been doing this for so long. A lot of people always said, Well, you know, the all the greatest artists were always doing that stuff anyway, that they were heavily involved with their branding. You know, Madonna slaved on this, da-da-da-da. They have all the like the counter to that. In your experience. It sounds like you don't find that to be true.
1: Is that the case? I think it's true if an artist is acclimated that way. I think that the whole music industry has turned into this like one-size-fits-all type thing, but it really isn't. You're talking about a business that's supposed to be supportive of a creative medium. You can't turn it around and say the creative medium is at the whims of the business. That's a bunch of horseshit. Madonna, like, has been incredibly successful, there's no question about it, but she really is a pioneer in terms of being able to create, like, an image that went along with her persona. I mean, the Beatles were able to do stuff like that. There are plenty of artists over time that created, like, a vibe for themselves, were even able to market themselves really nicely. People started coming up with logos and things like that. You know, a lot of that stuff just sort of came naturally. Now this whole thing has become a thing where you have to. You know, what if you're not acclimated that way? And what if that's the only way that you're going to be able to get to have any kind of success or recognition and you just your head isn't isn't oriented in that direction. All of a sudden, that in itself is going to affect a person's sense of confidence, their ability to really stay focused on what they need to do. Let's also be fair, like Madonna took a lot of songwriting credit for the music that she did, but she didn't really write anything. You know, I mean, she had the, she was in a position to do that. You know, it's some people are really, really good business people and they can be good performers and good entertainers and stuff like that. But not everyone is. It's not right to impose this kind of judgment on everyone, especially if that winds up being the main criteria for someone to be able to be heard. It's nonsense. There has to be a more equitable, open playing field. I mean, that's not up to me. I wish it was because I think if it was, there'd be a lot more musical choices and people would be able to enjoy themselves more through music. But they would get more of that richness and more of an emotional connection with what they they were listening to. You're, You're adding ingredients into a stew that don't necessarily belong there. You know, I mean, some soups taste better with a little sugar in them, but, you know, some don't. It's very subjective. It's just hard to say that everyone should be doing the same thing. That actually really is a really great explanation. So with that soup
0: needing different ingredients, I think one of the most impressive things about your discography is you've done really poppy records and you know, for me personally you've made like some of my favorite art rock records with Mew. Is there any guidance you kinda of change when it's like more of a arty thing compared to pop? Like, do you have a view on that? Should the audience be considered in this? Like, you know, so many people think when you're making pop music that you have to consider the audience so much like you know i work at a major label and that goes around a lot is there anything you've seen with that consideration that you can
1: uh, this was the road that chris was going down that really could have been bad for the super unknown not his fault by the way it's an easy it's an easy thing to slip into when you think you know what your audience wants from you and you try and give it to them that is one of the biggest mistakes that you as an artist can make there are also artists who've practically destroyed their careers by taking a turn that their fans did not appreciate. Although the artist in some cases felt so committed to this turn that they were willing to risk everything. And in a lot of cases when that kind of thing happens, they were able to redeem themselves. Bob Dylan is a great example of this when he went from being a folky to like started introducing electric guitar and a full band. Like he was vilified in the folk community because they felt like he was theirs. I mean, it almost destroyed his career and his happiness as well. I mean, that was a really radical turn for him. I, I go by feel. I kind of indicated that before, that this is really an intuitive thing. I mean, that new record, Glass Handed Kites, I think you're talking about, that was just a feel thing. It was really about how it felt to me. I don't know, I guess Celebrity Skin is probably one of the poppier records I've done. I think you'd get more poppy than some of the songs. <laughs> but the thing is, is that that was the, the kind of record that they wanted to make. There's also, you know, there's a mission that goes along with each of these records. For me to be doing my job, I have to accurately reflect the artist's desires and what it is they're trying to say. Well, accurate in this case is a very, very subjective term in a way that gets that idea across. Accurate or otherwise, I mean, I guess it's as accurate as David Bowie, (laughs) who who liked to change characters at the drop of a hat, but he was always expressing who he was, um, as mercurial as that may be. The audience doesn't really come into play as much, because if you do that, you're going down what appears to be based on, I think, common music industry thought. That's kind of like the sensible road, but it is actually, it is a rabbit hole of Epic and unending proportion. It'll never end. And the reason for that is that you're basically looking for the approval of millions of people you've never met and are likely never going to meet. You may think you know what they like, you may think that you can figure them out based on the quote unquote data you know or what they bought last year, you know, the record that everyone liked last week or something like that, but that's nonsense. It doesn't work like that. You can predict audiences to a certain extent, but people are driven by emotion. They ultimately society I think is working right now to kind of suspend that, but really people want to feel something. And that to me is the only reason why records like Celebrity Skin Or super unknown or grave dancers union why they sold, because they connected with people on a very, very, very deep level. And that's exactly what they're designed to do. And that kind of communication isn't something that you sit around trying to calculate. I should correct that. You do. It's more of an overarching thing than saying, I'm gonna use these sounds because they're familiar. I'm gonna, you know, write this kind of hook because it's familiar. It's more like I'm gonna project this emotion because it's universal, because it'll connect with a whole lot of people. Or maybe it's just going to connect with the people it connects with. But it's going to reach somebody, because I put myself into this, because I I imbued it with me. You know, I made this want to matter to someone else, to want to speak to them. And in the end, that's all music is about. Love that. So... I read 200 books on creativity
0: before I wrote my book on creativity, and yours was one of about like maybe four that were actually good. I had not known when I started to write a book on creativity and music that there was a book on creativity that I got scared because I'm like, oh, I like these guys' records so much, oh God. And then I saw it was more broad creativity. I'm like, oh, thank God, because I don't want to have to do this. I was scared to read it, and then it was so good. You know, So I've been producing records for 20 years, and I know there's a common thing that us older types go, you know, the kids today, they just don't know the lessons that we learned back then. Is there any creative
1: lessons that you really see being lost today? (laughs) so many you know but the thing is is that people make this into an age-related thing and it's really not i I do feel that like the directions that people are going down creatively right now aren't being fueled by their sort of lack of knowledge of like are you know you you didn't have to struggle the way we did kind of thing it's really fueled by a corporate mentality and you said that you've worked in a a record company right yeah i I work at atlantic records so oh atlantic Oh, thank you <laughs> you you know what this looks like. I mean, there is a mentality that really kind of reflects more on the economics and how to get things done as quickly and expediently as possible, stripping all the fat away from the process and making things happen as quickly as possible without a whole lot of thought. But for the sake of making it something that's palatable to the people who have to work that way. I guess there's a branding that's attached to it. Like it's more authentic to do it like that. Or it's, well, this is how everyone does it. This is how the Stones made their records, which of course is a crock of shit. They didn't always work like that. And on and on and on. Like to me, this is really a case more of, you know, generations of people who are younger being led astray by the corporate aspirations of people who are much, much older. So... It's really more of a, another way that the baby boomers have destroyed planet Earth. <laughs> See, I blame all this shit, on, I blame this shit on my generation. I don't think there's any getting around it. And that's another reason why I think that if we have done so much stuff to make this not right, we have to do what we can to try and fix it. At least those of us who are in a position to be more conscientious about it. I think by and large, being able to get back to that place where you're making some kind of expressive statement that connects with people on a deep emotional level, that's something that has been so written out of the narrative at this point, but it's the absolute core of why music even exists. It's only to be communicative. That's it. I mean, entertainment is, it's cute, it's nice. But it's part of the window dressing. This was always meant to be something where people speak to each other. That's all it is. To not have that in a piece of music is devastating, and it also renders it pretty much useless. If you listen, for example, to a piece of music that was done five years ago that was immensely popular, you'll see this happening. And you know, I've heard people make the excuse, "Oh, you know, these kids like they have the attention span of a flea." It's like you know, they're just being—they can't stay with anything for you know for very long. And it's like really well. Um, I've seen lots of kids who will go back to music that was done a long time ago and they can't seem to stop listening to it. So, you know, sure, if you're talking about My Humps by Black Eyed Peas or something like that, <laughs> you, yeah, you laugh, right? But do you remember how big this song was? It was oh, yeah. everywhere. And now, good luck trying to find anyone who's listening to it, let alone who will play it. Come on. Every single piece of music was maybe a handful of exceptions here and there that gets released now is relegated to the junk heap within... You know, five years. of it. I mean, it's almost as if it never happened. My daughter, I'm assuming still is like a Kanye West fan. Like She, she was a big fan of, all, of a lot of his old stuff. You know, I asked her um, a while ago what her feelings were about that. And she was like, I can't really listen to those old records anymore. They just sound so old. Wow. <laughs> There's no staying power. There's no lasting traction or connection that's made. And it's really because the artists don't have, they don't have that connection to themselves, that interconnection where they're able to really kind of relate to what it is they're trying to say, like what the, what their intent is. To tell you the truth, that's not always a conscious thing. It's part of what, if you read books on creativity, you must have read this guy, Shant Mahaling. Him and Keith Sawyer are like the kings of it. All right. Yeah. So what he wrote about flow, if you don't read that you're a fool. Yeah. Yeah. So that is basically what I'm talking about. Being in flow is a sense of connectedness. It's a connectedness to, you know, I mean, whatever you consider, like, I guess, divinity, for lack of a better word, or something that's bigger than you, source, whatever. I mean, some people say God. I don't want to get too spiritual or trippy or hippie-ish, but, like, there's a sense of connection, and that connection means you're connected with yourself, but you're also connected with everything and everyone around you. There's, like, this this open sense of transit, and you're able to communicate your ideas, but more importantly, your feelings. And you can do it through the medium of sound or music. And this is something that I feel is really being lost at like a very rapid pace, especially since this society is being molded into a purely consumer society at this point where consumption is more important than anything else. And music, I think, is really the only way to be able to get back to a place of Inner understanding and connectedness to other people and to oneself. It's very therapeutic and it's cathartic as well. And that's something that we need very much of right now. That's really great.
0: Was it the case that you had a studio that was a uh, control room and live room joint? Yeah, at one point... At one point, my place in, that I had in Venice. Oh, I used to work for Ross Robinson, and he used it, right? You didn't? Yeah. yeah. Are you serious? Uh, about 2004 to five, I worked for Ross, uh, engineer. No kidding. Oh, shit. Wow. Okay. And uh, I remember he did like all those records at your place down the road. Yeah. If there's anything that's unconventional today, I can't think of any studio right now is having a joint control room and live room. Um, what was the idea behind that?
1: Well, it wasn't my idea. <laughs> it, it absolutely wasn't. That was something that people just had started to do. Um, Daniel Lanois had a place in New Orleans. I think it was Queensway or King. I can't remember. Yeah, I, I remember this. Yeah, Kingsway. I think you're right. Yeah, I went to visit it because I was thinking of doing a record down there. And it was the same thing. It was like these these two mansions in, I think, the French Quarter that had been kind of I guess the walls have been knocked out or something. And there was a great big recording space. There was a console right in the middle of the room. So you were sort of like in the thick of it, so to speak. When I got this place in Venice, the guy who had it before me, he had everything set up like that because he'd work with a producer named Bill Betrell. And Betrell was really into working like this. So this guy, he kind of emulated that whole thing. So I sort of inherited it and I kind of stuck with it until I got to a point where I was like, well, I can't tweak as much as I want to. So I have to find a different room to be able to do this. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Yeah.
0: (laughs) But lots of cool records made there despite that. But it was a bit of a hurdle.
1: Yeah, it was. It was a hurdle. And in the end, it was too much of a hurdle for me. I mean, I I do like I always like to have the opportunity to be able to, to tweak stuff and to me like the sonics they speak that this is where I think sonics are important now they are the medium through which the music comes across to people who are listening to it and to me it 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 can come down to like the microphones that you're using on instruments if they're not getting the tonal information across in a way that's really going to help project the songs then you know again this is my own feeling about I just I just need to be able to have that kind of flexibility and I, I love the idea of being out in the room with the band while they're playing, and it's really exciting and stuff like that. But I also find that that turns me into more of like a a fan. And to tell you the truth, hearing like a bunch of loud cymbals, like (sighs) not really being able to hear what the performance is actually sounding like, it's fun to be a part of that. I guess to a certain extent, you can really feel like you're participating in the overall vibe of the recording, but really I can't do the kind of job that I feel I should be doing in terms of being able to analyze the performance as it's coming down. So that's not really my preferred way of working.
0: Understood. So I want to be respectful of your time. So can you tell us any last thoughts you'd like to give and tell everybody where they can
1: find your new service and all that? Um, Yeah, sure. It's actually under services on michaelbeinhorn.com. There's a reasonable description about it, I think. Not wanting to sell it too much, but I just do think it's so important for artists to be able to have access to this kind of thing. I know that that it's actually, that it's something that's very foreign to people right now. And again, that's because no one's really doing it on their records anymore. It's just so important. (laughs) It really is. It's almost crazy to to have to say that to make the point, but Having seen the kind of effect it has on people's recordings, I just, I, I, I know
0: If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet, that if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creators' website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you are unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going.